The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're going to continue here. Uh, all the verses will be on the screen. I'm going to read our passage for us because we're going to kind of pull a section out of Genesis 28. I'm going to pray, and then we will start looking at this together. By the way, if you do have questions during the sermon, uh, what we do here is if you have questions or you want to interact at all, um, not only do I ask questions during the sermon, but you can send a, a, a text to the number that's on the screen. It's usually at the bottom of the screen, that one right there. Now, we pick up in Genesis after uh, Jacob has uh, swindled his brother out of his inheritance and is now trying to get a wife. Chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a place and stayed there that night because the sun had had set. Usually a good place, reason to stop. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the Lord of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done all that I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his dream and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put his, under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and nothing to wear and clothing, clothing to wear so that I can come again um, into my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you have given me, I will give a full tenth to you. All right, let's pray. God, as we look at this passage and consider um, how you find Jacob and how you help him and pursue him and mature him, I ask that you would help us this morning to find you in the midst of our lives, maturing us to be more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. As many of you are aware, um, yesterday was the Hope Festival uh, downtown. Um, I thought it was fantastic. I was talking to the staff there, and they um, were just commenting that I think that that was kind of the largest group of folks that have come to Hope Festival before. I mean, it was a consistent group of people the whole time. It wasn't kind of like Fitchard Spurts. It was 11 to 2. I don't know how many people there were. I'm terrible. We'll just say like 10,000 people or a million were there. I don't know. A lot. <laughs> a bajillion. Um, so one of the things that I enjoy about those moments is I enjoy um, 
watching the people around, I sort I really enjoy engaging with people and just kind of finding out where they're at, you know, um, all those sort of things. But in that context, you're watching a lot of people who are in various stages of recovery and their own sobriety and the steps of what it means to be uh, walking in sobriety and not um, in substance uh, disuse or anything like that. And I just think it's incredible to see, like, here's all these people. Some, I'm, certain that, I'm sure that there are some there who are still struggling with their addiction, but there are many who are celebrating the fact, and that's the reason we're having the festival, that they are walking in recovery. Um, and it makes me think about uh, the 12 Steps program and just how profoundly helpful the 12 Steps have been to millions and millions of people. And it, it's one of these internal things for me of why is the 12 Steps so successful and helpful? And some of it is, it's just quite simply very practical and moving people from one stage of wanting sobriety to the next. So just a, real quick, does anybody know the first three, just for the first three, anybody know the first three of the 12 steps? Do you, do you want to shout, you can shout them out. Do you, and I, I can tell them if you don't want them. Uh, what's the first one? Exactly. Admitting you're, you're powerless. Second one, anybody know the second one? I don't want you to get an A on the test. I want everybody else to be able to shit. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, second, one, do you, second one is, you're right, uh, it is recognizing the power of, uh, your, of God, basically. Like recognizing um, that I am, I'm powerless over my addiction and God has power over my, uh, my substance use. And the third one is a decision to entrust yourself to God as you understand him. It's very practical, like because it, it, there's a there's a real sense in which it causes you the first three steps of this of the twelve step program to wrestle with who am I? How how have I really like messed up my life? But then how do I find a way just a step outside of myself to move forward? Right now we're not going to review. This, this is not a sermon on reviewing the twelve steps. I'd love to do that another time. But that that sense of maturity of going from my life is crazy with this, this, this addiction to I need to find peace of mind and sobriety in life outside of myself. Like that's a really critical maturing step. And frankly, it relates to the passage we're talking about this morning. Jacob is in the midst of his life just being a total mess. And the passage that we find here is what does it look like to mature spiritually with God? What does it look like to go from one simple step to the next? Now, what this is, what we're talking about here is not like, here's the 12 steps of becoming a perfect Christian. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about this morning is basically kind of, what you might say, four tokens, or four kind of placeholders that help us be, begin to kind of put a, um, the rails on moving forward in our maturity with Jesus. So here's the main point of what we're talking about. Excuse me, this is bothering me right there. Here we go. Here's the main point we're talking about. Spiritual maturity begins with finding God right where we are. Right? That's, that's really what this passage is all about. This passage orbits around this, and we're going to get four kind of uh, tokens along the way. We're going we're to get a stone, a staircase, a gate, and a valve. These are four things. It's not, this is not a secret sermon. It's very obvious in the passage. But these four sort of placeholders, these four sort of tokens help us kind of orbit around this idea of 
What does it look like for each of you, each of, each of us, to say, I know that I need to grow. And what does it look like to grow from where I am now to where I want to be with God? So this passage draws us into the life of Jacob, who's a famous character, happens to be my namesake, right? So it's a bit of an awkward passage to be like, Jacob in the passage, but not Jacob, but me. You know, I don't plan on having multiple wives and uh, 12 children. That's not my plan. <laughs> That's the, certainly not my wife's plan either. You guys be doing a funeral service for me if that ever became my plan. <laughs> so, all right, here's what we're going to do. Spiritual maturity begins with finding God right where we are. We're going to pick up here in verse 10. We're just going to look at verses 10 and 11. And we're going to see our first token along the way of what does it mean to kind of set up a path for maturity and growing in Jesus. We're going to see a stone. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran, right? Just so you kind of understand what's going on in this passage. Basically, Abraham is the big granddaddy in the passage already. And Jacob is following his granddaddy's path to go back to his granddaddy's farm to get somebody else that is in the, that kind of vicinity to be his wife, right? It's a very kind of like classic story, right? A coming of age story, you might say, right? Somebody trying to find a spouse or a major life transition. Basically, that's what's going on here. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head to lay down in that place to sleep, right? Jacob's life up to this point, I, I, as we're kind of preaching through the rest of Genesis, we're, we're kind of leapfrogging over some passages. We've, we've jumped over some passages up to this point, but basically, Jacob's a twin. He's a second born, so in that culture, he would have um, not gotten any of the inheritance, and his brother would have, and through a series of conniving with his mother, he had swindled his brother out of his, etern- of his inheritance, and now Jacob is the big important one, and his brother has been cast aside, and his brother continues to make life choices that are terrible for the family. Jacob, there's nothing about Jacob's life up to this point that is actually very religious at all. He's deceitful. He's conniving. Right? He's just kind of a slimy guy. Like, he's not really, like, we, we tend to think of, like, all these Bible characters being kind of like, these are, like, the most outstanding people. And what you find through the book of Genesis is that they're all just kind of, like, creeps and weirdos and just a bunch of crazy people. And Jacob is no less than that. Up to this point, there's been nothing very like God-ish about his life. There's nothing that's marked him off as being separate or distinct or much like God at all. But he is in the midst of a life transition, right? He's trying to find a spouse, right? Back then, they didn't have swipe left or swipe right. He had to go back to the old, old place and find somebody that was willing to, you know, pick up and move with you. This is basically a coming-of-age story for Jacob where he needs maturity. Right? He needs to grow. And this is like for each of us, right? Whether it's starting up school, like you're going to high school now, or you're in recovery program now, or you're starting a new job, or fill in the blank. We all experience these transitions in life. They're all opportunities for us to mature. What we find here in this passage is that Jacob's journey to maturity wasn't, hey, go to this conference or go to this special concert or go to this special place, and that is the place where God's going to help you. We're going to find that Jacob is just laying down for a regular night's sleep, and God comes and finds him. Right? This stone, by the way, um, I know each of us read this story, and you're kind of like, bro, a stone for a pillow? Like, come on. Like, 
where it, it might have been like in the ancient world they would have like special like headrests where they would have like basically like smoothed out a stone where it would kind of like if you laid on your side it would kind of keep your head up or it could have been in the uh in the original language it could have been that he set the stone in kind of more like in front of his head like as like as he's sleeping somebody would kick the stone rather than his head sort of things. He would kind of like a, a way of protection. So it's not like, I, I don't actually think that he would have like laid his head on a stone. Maybe it was a smoothed out stone and it was comfortable, but I've, I don't know if you guys do this, but because I'm like a pastor, it's like my job when I walk around, I'm like, not a pillow, that stone, not a pillow. <laughs> I don't know why, but it basically, Jacob is in the midst of just normal life stuff. And before we move on, I just want to ask a question just to kind of, we're using this word maturity. When you think of the word maturity, what comes to mind? Like, what, what do you think of? What does that mean? An adult? So we've all, I don't know if you, I have had the occasion of occasionally meeting immature adults. <laughs> so what is it that makes somebody mature? Wisdom. So having kind of a perspective on life, right? Anybody else? I heard somebody. I thought I heard somebody else. Oh, we had two wisdoms at the same time. Awesome. Anybody else? Discipline, like self-control, kind of like having an understanding of yourself. Growth, internal growth. Yeah. Being able to acknowledge that you're wrong. Yeah. These are great answers. I, I think they're all right. And, Anybody else just before we move on? It's interesting to ask, then, what does it mean to grow as in Christian maturity? It's basically wisdom, acknowledging you're wrong, those sort of things, understanding that this is God's world and Jesus is in the picture, right? This is not rocket science. Like, these are not, like, crazy formulas. It, so this isn't, these aren't trick questions either. Seeing God in the reality of our lives. So what we're going to do, we're going to move on from the stone we're going to move on to a staircase. That's the second token along the way. So we've seen the stone, and the stone really just represents that God meets us in the very ordinary, regular part of our life. As regular as a stone that you're going to walk out here and you're going to see the, you know, the granite curbings of the street, just regular part of our lives. A staircase, a staircase is going to be a little bit something we need to unpack a little bit. Let's read. I'm going to read verse 12 to 15 for us. And he dreams. Jacob, no surprise. And behold, this is the surprising part. There was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and ascending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall, take, shall, shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. Just to pause real quick. When he says the dust of the earth, he's basically talking like a dust storm. Like you think of like a dust storm that you've ever seen either in life or in pictures or whatever, like just spread everywhere. Like that's why I hate to go to the beach because like there's no going to the beach and leaving the beach. The beach always goes back with you, right? Whether you like it or not. Behold, I will be with you and will keep you wherever you go. And you um, and will bring you back to this land, verse 15, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. So what's the deal with this ladder thing? Like, is this just kind of like a big fireman's ladder from heaven to earth? 
A few months ago, we preached through the book of Genesis at the beginning, and we talked about the Tower of Babel. And basically, when we talked about the Tower of Babel, we commented that at the time, at the, at the time they would build these gigantic kind of pyramid-like structures, and they would have a temple for, for, the, for the God that they were worshiping at the top, and then they would have a little, like, hut temple at the bottom where the priest would go in, and there would be a staircase between the top and the bottom. This is a reference to that. Basically, the picture here is basically saying God has revealed there's a temple right where, where Jacob is staying, right in the common area of, which, of Jacob's life. God is at the top of it. Jacob's at the bottom of it. Angels are ascending and ascending, going in between. So basically, Jacob has stumbled into God pulling back the veil of his presence and the people that he wants to worship him. So that's why we're using, I'm saying staircase, because a ladder is a little, there's a whole bunch of technical things I could go into about that. You can ask me about the Q&A, like, hey, what's up with the ladder? And I can tell you about that. But basically, the point is that Jacob didn't build this place of worship for God. God is the one who reveals who he is so that Jacob can come in and worship him. See, the other part about this is that God didn't build the staircase for Jacob to go up to God. God reveals the staircase so that he can see God coming down to him. So not only have we seen that God finds Jacob in the middle of his common life, but that God reveals himself coming down into that common life of where Jacob is, where you are, and saying, I want to be here with you. Do you notice that here in verse 15? Behold, I am with you. That's not just kind of like a get well card. This is God showing the distance between him and Jacob and then saying, I'm coming down to be in your life. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Right? So this is, the space isn't special. It's the people that God cares about. And will bring you back to this land. And I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, keeping verse 15 in mind, Jacob up to this point in the story has swindled his brother. He knows his brother has got a hit job on him. Like he knows his brother wants to kill him, which is one of the reasons why he's getting out of town. So his brother wants to kill him because he's lied to him. His dad, he's lied to his dad about who he was, right? His dad was blind. That's how he got the blessing as opposed to his brother, right? He's also just like a mama's boy. Like he just like is, he's in his twenties and he's riding on the coattails of his mom. He's deceiving people. And here he is in the middle of his life, just trying to like, okay, next thing to do is I got to get a wife. And in the midst of that, God shows up. Can you imagine, like, what is going on? Why do you think Jacob needs to hear verse 15? Can we see it here? Right here. Behold, I am with you. This is the last line. Why can you think of, does Jacob need to hear that? Anybody got any thoughts? probably anxious, right? Fearful, probably full of shame. Anything, anything else that kind of come to mind? Like about just Jacob's like mentality of why he needs to hear verse 15. See, Jacob is probably fear, shame, embarrassed, just not fully aware of himself. And then 
God shows up right where he is, comes down, I mean, knocks on the door, walks into the living room, sits down on the couch next to him and says, I'm going to be with you. I see you for who you are. I want to be here right now. You see, that's what's going on here is this is like the biblical idea of a blessing. That's what this category is. A blessing is when you're seen, you're spoken to, and you're given something in the Bible. Think of like a good, like anybody been in sports, a good coach. A good coach sees you. They see who you're, what what you can do. They speak affirming words, right? Good job. You did a great job with that tackle or, you you know, keep your kicks a little bit higher or whatever the coaching is for the, I'm sure the runners, and there's a lot of runners here. Whatever your running coaching is, I don't know, swing your feet faster. You did a great job swinging your feet or whatever it is. <laughs> right? And then they commit themselves to somebody's improvement. You, you pick up here verse 15. Behold, I am with you, Jacob, who has done all of these things. I'm with you. Honestly, God is not obligated to be anywhere. If he wants to be with you, he wants to be with you, and he says it. And I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. And then he says, this is the profound part to me, for I will not leave you. Notice, what, is, what does he promise here? Until I have done what I have promised. See, I don't know where you need to grow maturity-wise. What does that look like for you? What are the, the things you're working on or the things that you're just I know that I have a blind spot for this or whatever it is you need to grow in, wherever that category is, God comes into the regular parts of your life and he points at those things and says, I am committed to your growth. I am going to help you grow in this particular area. I want to see you grow, right? How many of us have had projects that we did not come, books that we got one chapter in and they've been sitting on the shelf for 10 years or whatever. Incomplete projects. I mean, just basically that's my life. Like, well, there's a garage project that I started back in May and <laughs> there's the broom to sweep out the garage just sitting there. Haven't done it yet. When God says, I want you to grow, I want you to be more like me. He comes down into your normal life he points at it and says, I'm committed to this project. And the thing about God, he doesn't lie. He doesn't renege on his promises. He's committed to your growth. So as we're kind of moving through this story, kind of the first thing of how we begin to experience spiritual maturity, to grow to be more like God, he comes to the normal life right where we are. He sees and he comes down into our lives and wants us. That's the staircase. Next thing we're going to look at here is pick up here in 16 to 17. I want to see a gate. Now, when I say a gate, we can either be like like a chain link fence gate, or it can be like a gate, you know, like the, the garden gates where they got the stones kind of all pitched together in a, in a curve. Whatever gate image looks like for you, it's a word from the passage, but whatever works for you. Here we're going to pick up in verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely God is in this place. And I did not know it for he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. What 
what purpose does a gate serve? Like, what is what do you have a gate on your yard for? Yeah, keep people in that you want in, keep people out that you want out. And here we have this image of basically God saying, I want you, I've come down my staircase from my heaven, heavenly house down into your regular life, and I've opened up the gate because I want you to come in. And what is the first thing that Jacob does when the gate's opened? I'll tell you what he doesn't say. Let's get to work. Let's find that wife. What is it that he says? I can't believe God invited me here. He worships. That's what goes on here, right? Like he speaks is like, surely God is in this place and I didn't know it. I'm responding to who God is, right? He's talking about who God is. He's responding to what the type of God is that he that has opened the door to him. He is in fear and awe. This is an effect, I would imagine. This is an effect, uh, a part of Jacob's conversion, you might say. Right, his response to God is to for who God is and not for what God does for him. Right, he suddenly realizes this is the type of God that he is. I'm a deceiver. My whole family basically doesn't like me. I'm basically on the road to go find a wife someplace else because my brother's got a terrible family. And um, I want to impress my dad, so I'm going to go home. In the midst of all this confusion of his life, God shows up. And his response is not, okay, let's get to work. His response is, I can't believe this type of God wants me. There's a picture in Jesus' life. Can we throw up uh, on, the, on the screen John 1, the passage from John 1? This is the beginning of G Jesus' life. And it's a direct reference to the passage in, our, in front of us here. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaid, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law has, and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son, Jesus of Nazareth. Gotta get that TH in there. The son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is basically like, Can anything good come out of Manchester? Like, it is just kind of like, or any place that people look down on. And I'm like, I think good things come out of Manchester because I love it here. But, you know, people from Boston look down on us like we're no big deal. Philip said to him, come and see. Next passage. Uh, next slide. There we go. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, Israel indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you, how do you know me? Right? This is basically... Uh, Jesus is calling him out and saying, like, you are a truth teller. Like, you're telling him who he is. And Daniel's like, I don't know who you are. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, and here's our passage, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angel of, angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, right? That's a direct reference to this passage. Now, I don't really know all that was going on in this passage, and this really isn't a sermon about First John 1, but basically, whatever happened with, with Nathan, he was under the fig tree, probably praying or something where he was some sort of personal, intimate moment with God, and Jesus is pointing that and saying, I saw who you are. I wanted you to be with me. 
there's something where he calls out Nathaniel on something in his life. I really, really don't know. And Nathaniel felt seen and known and wanted. Frankly, that's what happens with Jacob in our passage too, isn't it? And Nathaniel's response is to worship Jesus. And Jesus' response to that is to say, I'm the gate. I'm the way that you come in to worship God. See, this passage, this is what we talk about being grace in the Bible, right? God comes down into the mess of our lives, whatever maturity looks like for you this week ahead. We'll just say this week. Not, you know, like, I don't like doing my taxes and I want to become somebody who likes to do my taxes. Like, I want to be somebody who's a little less angry around my kids or somebody who's a little bit more gentle with people that annoy me or whatever maturity looks like for you this week. And God comes down, he says, I'm committed to that project, but I'm committed to it on my terms. I want to do it so that you experience me and you know me and you grow in me and you experience my nearness because I enjoy you. And the response the Bible gives us is not to be like, co-sign, I'm on board, let's get to work. The response is, God, I can't believe that this type of God wants me in his life. See, God wants us to enjoy who he is. I want to point out, I just want to comment a little bit on the singing and worship thing, and then we'll move on to the passage. Can we throw up, put up Ephesians 5 here? It's interesting to me. Why, why is it that singing, why is it that worship is kind of what comes out of these passages? Like, why is it those things? I think about that all the time. It's interesting. Like, my job, one of my main parts of my job, obviously, is to do what I'm doing right now, is to preach, right? To write sermons and to preach. My experience is that generally, like most people in their experience of our church, like nobody has ever, in my recollection, said, you know what? The best thing about King's Cross was your sermons. Nobody's ever said that. The best thing that people experience as a part of uh, our life together is our worship, whether that's uh, generally that's the singing of our, of our church. They enjoyed the musicians as they lead us in singing. They enjoy the congregation as we sing. I think that's generally true. Like we respond and experience the presence of God when we sing, right? What we're doing right now, like I'm trying to ask questions because we're trying to engage more with over the passage together. But what shapes us and transforms us tends to be, and what matures us tends to be singing, right? I think that's kind of what Paul's capturing here in Ephesians 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Basically talking about maturity. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And here's the part. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to the God, to God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You notice what he doesn't say there. He doesn't say sermons. <laughs> I'm just trying to push my role right now down and to say what shapes us and molds us to be more like Jesus is when we are singing, filling our physical lungs with air, using our vocal cords, moving our mouth to say the words that then shape our brains to value the things that God loves and to experience in our souls the very presence of God with us. That's, I think, how we mature. I mean, I'm sure, I know sermons are helpful. Like, I don't need anybody to pat my back after this or anything like that. But I think what shapes us to be more mature is as we see God's reality, as God sees it, 
and we involve our physical selves to say with our mouths and to feel with our hearts what God is about, that matures us. You do that 52 Sundays a year or 40, you know, vacations and whatever. That's going to shape you to love and know and be more like Jesus, to mature. I think that's how this passage leads us to understand what's going on in Jacob's life. What's end, end seeing how God comes with a stone, common life, comes down the staircase into our lives. The gate that God opens for us to come in, not to get to work, but to enjoy who he is through worshiping him. And then let's just end with a bow. Verse, uh, verse 18 to 22. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, right? Here we're just trying to pull our words out of the passage, saying, if God be with me and will, will keep me in this way that I go, I will give my bread to, and, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I will again come to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone that I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. All right, first of all, this is the longest vow in the, in the Old Testament, right? It's a long vow where he basically commits himself to God. And by the way, Luz is no small town, right? This is not like, hey, I'm passing through, you know, New Boston, and now the, na- the place gets renamed. This is him passing through Boston. Like, up until this point, the story has kind of said, like, oh, he came to a place, like, it wasn't that important. But actually, he was walking through basically kind of like a Boston-sized city at the time. It was just a regular place, and now it's taken on importance because God has shown up, right? God's the one that drives the importance of the story, not the name of the place, right? And why a vow? Let me, let me put up this, this quote from Bonhoeffer, and again, one of my favorite people, on vows. Let me put up this next slide. This is, a, this is what Bonhoeffer would say. Imagine if I said this at a wedding. Today you think you love, your love will sustain your marriage. But it is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. Right. The point of what Bonhoeffer is saying here is that you don't get married because you're like so in love and you're just going to stay in love forever. I hope you do, and you get married. But the marriage basically provides guardrails to to ensure that your love stays on track, right? You're not getting married because marriage because of marriage. You're, I'm getting in circles now. You guys cool? So when we say making a vow here, we can take that. Thankfully, good. Take that quote off. I get twisted up on that, right? Jacob could have an emotional response and just say, "God, you're so great. This is so awesome." But his response is to say, I want this to shape and mold my life. That's what this vow is all about. As we talk about with conversion, right, when people are becoming Christians and they say, I want to follow Jesus, the vow is baptism. Say, okay, let's make this a public profession of following Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus, you want to vow your life to him, let's do that with baptism as a public way of saying, God, I'm following you. Right? Notice here. This isn't a sermon on giving, right? We're not going to talk about, like, tithing and all that stuff in this passage. But Jacob's conversion is marked by the end of this passage, right? He's gone from being a deceiver, somebody who takes from other people, and here at the end of this passage, after God has shown up, he's a giver. He gives a tenth. 
That's really what the point of tithing here is all about. It's just to mark out that God showing up in the midst of Jacob's life has reshaped him, matured him from somebody who takes from other people to be somebody who gives. Right? That's what we want in our lives. We want to become people who go from being indifferent and when God shapes us to be compassionate. People who are deceitful to be truth tellers. We want to be shaped to be more like Jesus. And the way we do that it's not by going to a conference about compassion. It's not by going to a conference about mercy. It's not by going to a conference about whatever. It's about finding that God has come into the very small details of our lives, the very common realities of what we need. He's walked down the stairs to be in our lives and commit to us. He's opened the door, the door so that then the way we respond to him primarily adoration and awe of who he is. And then we respond by saying, God, I want this to shape my life. We make a vow. That's what this passage is all about. So I don't know where you're at with wanting to grow, what your maturity path looks like, but I think that as we work through this passage, I think that we've begun to see at the very heart of this, spiritual maturity begins with finding God right where we are. Let's pray. God, as we've looked at this passage, I pray that you would shape us I pray that you would help us to be more like you, but more importantly, God, just to see you for who you are. So would you continue to mold us for the sake of Jesus. So his name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.